Okay, um, tonight we will go through uh, the book of um, Daniel, chapter 2, I should say. A real quick, big picture. Remember, Daniel is in the... Uh, Daniel's in Babylon now. He was taken captivity in the first wave of, cap, of, the cap, of the captors that were taken from Israel, from Jerusalem over to Babylon. And we're in the years around 605, six, tonight's probably 604, 603. Who knows exactly what those, those years were. God didn't reveal it to us. Uh, it's not that important. We kind of know what it is based upon history and history alone. Um, but everything was all about this, the life of Christ and his kingdom. That's what it's going to be reporting to. And as we mentioned in our prayer, that's what it's all about. We're part of that kingdom right now. What was prophesied, we are now part of the fulfillment of that. And that's just amazing to think about. That we're looking back on something that was written 2,600 years ago, and now we're part of this thing. Uh, we talked about four purposes and tonight, we're going to see big time how God is working providentially, even in an unseen manner, in the lives of Daniel. And we're also going to see, in particular, a preview of things to come from Nebuchadnezzar to the setting up of the Messianic Kingdom, how that was prophesied, and how it went about being prophesied that that would take place. Um, so tonight, the agenda is very simple, chapter 2. <laughs> All right, uh, so here we are. We're going through there. Slides are going to be real simple tonight. I'm going to break down chapter 2 into these various um, sections. So we'll be talking about the king's dream, which is really specified in verse 1. And then in chapter, in verses 2 through 13, we're going to talk more about um, the failure of the astrologers and of the magicians who were called by Nebuchadnezzar to come to him to interpret his dream. Then we'll look at Daniel's request for time, his prayer, how it, was, how it was fulfilled and answered, how Daniel responds to that fulfillment, which is always a good lesson. And then we will look at how Daniel was brought before Nebuchadnezzar and um, the things that are said there. That is so interesting, the, the back and forth there. And then we'll look at the contents of the dream, the interpretation of the dream, and then finally Daniel and his friends being promoted. Um, so let's take a look at the first verse. Um, bigger picture, chapter 2 is probably counted as one of the most important chapters in the Bible because on account of the very thing that's mentioned in chapter in verse 44 of the spiritual truths that are revealed regarding the messianic kingdom. This chapter includes prophecies about major world empires, not kings, but kingdoms, major world empires that are going to come into existence. The Babylonian empire that Nebuchadnezzar was a part of was obviously already there. And then... Uh, while the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans are not specifically named, when we take a look at the big picture of what all happened and that, and that the final kingdom of God will be established during the Roman times, you just you sit back at this point in time and you think, where is all of that? And history will tell us what those kingdoms were and what those nations were. And it should be obvious once we look at chapter 2 
that God's hand is smack dab in the middle of the control of human earthly kingdoms. Sometimes his hand is unseen and he's making things happen as we will see tonight, but there is one major grand destination in the mind of God and that as we saw on the, on the slide, that is the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that's going to be unique because the Medo-Persians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks were all part of God's plan, but they were also established in conjunction with man. God's kingdom will be established in conjunction with God. <laughs> man won't have anything to do with it. God will bring all of that about. And what is even more amazing in this chapter to me is the fact that the very future of God's plans is revealed to a, not to a believing Hebrew, but to a heathen monarch, Nebuchadnezzar. He gets the opportunity to be disturbed by a dream that God has given him, and yet he will see things in the future in a big picture-wise that has never been revealed uh, to somebody like that before. And so when we take a look at verse 1, um, Nebuchadnezzar of chapter 2, verse 1, it was in the second year of his reign that he had a dream, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. In other words, I, he stopped sleeping. This dream woke him up so bad. It is fascinating. I don't know anything about dreams. I mean, I dream all the time. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I write down what I wrote. I've just always done that because it, it bothers me when I can't remember what I dreamed, you know, 24 hours later. So I write it down. <laughs> if it's a good dream. If it's a bad dream, I say forget it. But it is interesting. You may not know this. I did not know this. There are like seven categories of dreams. There's lucid dreaming where folks are able to basically participate in their dreams, and sometimes they can even influence the outcome of the dreams. There's a thing called nightmare dreams. Anybody had those? <laughs> we all know what those are about. There's recurring dreams that people have over and over and over again. There's healing dreams that uh, sometimes when we wake from healing dreams, we go, I need to start a diet or I need to go exercise more. There's things called signal dreams, which make, uh, helps us make decisions sometimes about problems in our lives. There's prophetic dreams. Now, one rational explanation of this type of dream is the possibility that the dreaming mind is sometimes able to piece together bits of information that are gathered while we are awake. But sometimes we can't put them all together at the same time. And in those dreams, those things can be put together, what may be overlooked. And, it, and I've always heard people going, you know, I thought, I thought about something. In the middle of the night, it woke me up. Maybe this was the answer. Then there's an epic dream, which is a compelling or sufficiently memorable dream that may remain with the dreamer for up to many years after. You can, I had this dream one time when I was 12, and I will never forget it, you know, those kinds of dreams. And it seems like that what Nebuchadnezzar is now experiencing that God gave him was a combination of a prophetic dream and an epic dream. This dream allowed Nebuchadnezzar to see into the future with perfect clarity of what could have only been given by God himself. And it's interesting how God is getting ready to teach this man lessons over and over again of who the God is. And it greatly disturbed him because he wanted to know what it meant. He was convinced it was no ordinary dream. But the problem is he couldn't remember it. 
And now he's off to find out what was the dream. And so that introduces us to verses 2 through 13, where he now has this dream. He's deeply anxious about it because it's so mysterious, and it had stolen away his night's sleep. And as a result, he calls his professional advisors in. And in those days, those professional advisors were the astrologers and the chief magicians of various kinds. And he brought them into his presence. And I'm going to summarize these two, two verses 2 through 13. He's, he's bringing them into his presence. He said he experienced a very troubling dream through the night. And he wanted to know, his mean, wanted to know its meaning. And they did what they always would do. They said... Great, we're here. You tell us the dream, we will give you the answer. And that sounds like a great, great idea, except this time he threw a loop at them, and they were not expecting that. Dream interpretation was one of the important skills that these people had, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But they were not prepared to deal with the fact that this time they were to inform him about the dream and its meaning. So they had to go, here's what you dreamed, versus tell me what you dreamed. And that threw a double wrench at him. In any case, the conversation persisted with the wise man claiming that the king was being very unreasonable for not telling us what the dream is. Can you imagine telling the king that? You need to tell me the dream, or I'm going to walk away. No, you're going to walk away with no head. And that's what's going to happen. And it culminated then with the, the king decreeing that all the wise men were to be executed since they of their own volition admitted that they did not have the ability to meet his demand and that only the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh possess such knowledge. So it was their own admission that they were clearly saying they had no actual connection with a divine being which would make it impossible for them to ask for and receive the requested information. And then here comes Daniel. <laughs> and it's at this particular juncture that Daniel and his three friends, they enter the picture. And when all the wise men of the kingdom were rounded up to be executed, these four young recruits who may have still potentially, if you take a, take a look at the, the timelines, potentially they may have still been in the academy of soothsayers and magicians themselves. It's interesting when you take a look. I'm not going to get into that one, but when you take a look the, at the uh, particular timelines and how they counted time versus how we count time, it's very, very possible that they might have even been in that. Specific notes that I want to specifically mention in verse 2 and 3 of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Notice that he did command four groups of people. Take a look at verse 2. He called the magicians, he called the astrologers, he called the sorcerers, and he called the Chaldeans to tell the king of his dreams. Now, the Chaldeans, you go, well, he is a Chaldean. What is he doing called the Chaldeans? Well, the Chaldeans, in my research, said this may have been the, uh, the, the priest of the god Bel in Babylon. So, in other words, they possessed a lot of power. Um, but it was interesting to learn that these ancient dream experts all operated on the principle of the dreams and that their sequels followed an empirical law which, giving sufficient data, could be established and properly interpreted based upon their analysis of historical information. Jokingly, they were the first data mining experts. 
Everybody, it's all about data these days, right? Everything's about data. Computers are all about giving you all this kind of data. That's what they basically did. They gathered all this data. In modern times, they have unearthed dream manuals. This is fascinating. Which consisted of historical dreams and the events that followed them and arranged them systematically for easy references. Can you imagine carrying on your dream manuals? <laughs> hey, come here and interpret this dream. Oh, just a second. Give him a cart with all my dream manuals. And since these books had to cover every possible eventuality, they became enormously big and enormously long. And only the expert could find his way through them, but he had to know the dream to begin with in order for him to be able to search and try to come up with something that was parallel to what was going on. So the one thing that they needed to do their job is the very one thing that he said, you're not going to get. I'm not going to tell you the dream. Number one, I don't even remember it. So you're going to have to tell me the dream and then interpret it for me. Of the four groups, verse 4, who spoke up first? It was the Chaldeans. They seem to take the lead on this. That doesn't turn out too well for them, by the way. It doesn't say, but they may have been deemed the most important of the various classes of, uh, of these particular magicians and soothsayers. In verse 5, notice that the king, what he said in his own words. He said, look at verse 5. Uh, the king answered, my decision is firm. Oh, that's not the water one. I think I wrote down the wrong verse. I wrote down the wrong verse, and I can't see it right off the top of my head. But he basically said, what? The, the dream is gone. You asked me to tell the dream, I can't tell you. The dream is gone. It's gone. It's history. I cannot remember it. That's why you're here. What if they could not remember, and what if they could not interpret the dream for them? You shall be dismembered, <laughs> and you shall have your home, what? Destroyed, yeah. Their houses would be destroyed. They would be dismembered. Josephus pointed out that with, Nicod with uh, Nic Nicodemus, um, Nebuchadnezzar, that was one of his favorite things to do for all of his servants who could not fulfill one of his requests. He would dismember them and destroy their home. So this wasn't unusual. We think it's unusual, but it, it, this apparently was characteristic with this king. How would you like to have a boss who worked like that? Here's your demand. If you don't meet it, your head's gone, body's chopped up, house is destroyed. But if they do the, reveal the dream, what's going to happen? Their own dreams will come true. They will be given gifts. They will be given rewards. They will be given great honor. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through because Daniel is not motivated by that. But some of the other people in the story could be. Matter of fact, it was the research that I had said these magicians love to compete among each other to see who could get the glory. Because if they could get the glory, they got the honor, they got the riches, and they got all of that. So there was some little competition we'll see between them. In verse 7, they said, again, let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will give its, 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 its interpretation. That is very, very logical based upon how they were trained to do things. They are not claiming to be mind readers. 
They're just claiming to be dream interpreters. But he wants them to be a mind reader. But the king said, no, verse 8, you're just stalling because you want more time to come up with an answer. And I am tired of this. So that was frustrating for him. So he presses the case. He delivers to them the angry ultimatum that they will die unless they could tell them what he had dreamed. So it does seem interesting, though, that later, as we shall see, Daniel assures the king that if given some time, he will be able, by God's power, to bring the king both the dream and the meaning. But these soothsayers claim it's impossible, and they admit that they cannot even find and provide him what he wants. So when he hears Daniel, he says, well, maybe there's something to this kid. I'll take a shot. I'll give him some time. All right? So the Chaldeans, they lay it on the line. Verse, verse 11, look what they said. It is difficult that the king's, what the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose reason is not with flesh. And because of this, the king orders everyone to be slain. And we find in verse 13 that they even saw Daniel and his friends to be slain as well. So as we get into the next section, then Daniel's going to request for some time. The next three verses describe a conversation with Arioch, and I'm going to call him the chief executioner from now on, okay? He's just the, he's the guy in charge of killing everybody. He's the chief executioner. He was sent out by Nebuchadnezzar to go kill all the wise men. And when he went to go get the four young Hebrews, he was asked, why are you in such a hurry? So he informed Daniel, which is very interesting, that he informed Daniel. He just didn't chop off his head. He informed Daniel of what was going on, and then Daniel then immediately put together a plan. We weren't told specifically how this went because it, it implies that he got to go before the king, and it could, be, it could have been that. Later on, when he appears before the king, it seems to be the first time he's actually there. So more than likely, I'm thinking it's probably somebody indirectly went to him. But anyway, he's not executed. He's given some time, and in the, key, in the end, what did the king want to know? What does this dream mean? His own people said, I don't know. And he's so perplexed by it that he's still going to give Daniel a shot to tell them what's going on. So why not give this kid a little bit more time? Maybe he can come up with something. Um, verse 14. Look at verse 14. I love what it says about the answer that Daniel gave. Then with two things, counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch. There must have been some kind of discussion going on. And he realized the seriousness of the situation. One wrong word could have meant instant death for him. But it says with wisdom and with counsel, Daniel answered Arioch. And that's when they were able to ask the question, what is the decree? And he was able to make known with him. Daniel already possessed an ability that was far beyond his age. An ability to take a look at a situation, to grasp it, to have an instinct of some judgment, of some discernment. And because of that, Arioch engages him and speaks with him. Um, others had already been killed by this time. 
He didn't have to answer the question. He didn't have to entertain his questions at all, but he did. And I find that very, very interesting. In verses 17 through 19, then, we, in these three short verses, as we move on um, to the, the next portion of this particular chapter, I'm going to get my notes back up here. Um, we're going to find Daniel and his friends now have to make a plan. That plan was not to run away. That plan was not to escape by night. That plan was not to go and grab all the other captives that were there and say, help us out. That plan was a simple plan. I'm going to get together with my three friends, and I'm going to ask them to do one thing. Pray to God Almighty. Pray to God that he, he may grant us mercy and that he may deliver to us the dream that we can then give to Nebuchadnezzar. And it will not only save us, it will save all the wise men of whom they got to know and the people that they were training with. And so that's exactly what he did. They asked for the mercies from God of heaven concerning this secret. And we learn in a very short, simple statement that the secret was revealed to Daniel, not in a dream, but in a vision. And God often used visions to answer people's questions or to provide information. So the answer was granted to his prayer, was granted by God. And then it's interesting that once they prayed, they did not know at that particular time whether God would answer the dream would they, or the, uh, the, the prayer. They went to bed, just like you and I would, thinking what's going to happen. Tomorrow we may be dying. Tomorrow we may be dead. We may get our lives taken away from us. But they went to bed with faith that hoping God would request and provide an answer to their prayers. Um, when Daniel woke up the next morning, he knew that the prayers had been answered. The answer had been given to him, and what's the first thing that he does? Praises God, and he blesses God. And it, if you look in there, verses 20 through 23, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. Look at this one. He removes kings, raises up kings. He gives wisdom. to. Now, how would he know that? He was just revealed that, wasn't he? It's interesting he's now beginning to talk about what was just revealed in his own dream. He sees what's going to happen. He's getting ready to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, and he already knows the interpretation of the dream. But he's praising God for what he, for what he does and the power that he has, including the ability to raise up kingdoms and to put down kingdoms. And he gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understandings. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. That's an interesting one too. God of my fathers. We've talked about Daniel and the learning and the lessons there. Already, he's already been exhibited. We talked about the training that he had last week. He's not forgotten who his fathers were. 
He knows who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even all the law of Moses was. He'd been trained by that. He knows exactly what, what grounds him. You've given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demands. God faithfully provided Joseph the answers to the dreams of Pharaoh. I don't know. It doesn't reveal. But I wonder. I wonder if he thought about Joseph at the time when Joseph was in a similar predicament and was asked to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Of course, his dream was told to him with the seven calves and the fat calves, the thin calves, and the grains of head, the, the full grains and the thin heads. And then he knew that that had been revealed to him. Was it possible that God could do that for him? Probably so. Go ahead. Just impressed me that uh, Daniel had complete confidence that what God revealed to him was the real dream. You know, if it, if it was the wrong thing, off comes your head. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't doubt it at all. Yeah, it is amazing to see what, what is happening right in front of him. Now, remember, this guy is about 55 years old, silver hair, gray-headed, wise beyond all measure, right? No, he's still a kid. He's a kid who trusts in God. He's your age. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It is amazing, the faith that he is, is exhibiting. It is the Lord who removed kings and sets up kings. And so when we get down to verses 24 through 30, Daniel's now brought before Nebuchadnezzar. He had been told the secret at which the king was seeking, and Daniel sought out for the chief executioner. And we're basically down there right here now. So Daniel sought out for the chief executioner. And um, he finds him. And in verse 24, I thought it was interesting. He tells him to do something exactly that the king told him. He said, do not do what the king told you to do. And that's what? Go kill people. Go kill all the, the wise people. Verse 24, the first thing has him out. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Instead, you take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've, if I was the chief executioner, I'd probably think twice about that one. You're going to tell me to do what? To disobey the orders of the king? But there was something about him that he said, okay. Verse 25, he quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, and remember, this is where he loves to take a little credit. I found a man. I found your man. A man of the captives of Judah. This is not one of the soothsayers who, were already, who was already in here that you already ordered to be killed. No, he's not part of that group. He's in training, by the way. But I found a man, a captive from the, from the captives of Judah, who will make known to the king the interpretation. He's a little excited about this. There's a possibility that could happen. I'm not even sure he wanted to have all of the people killed and almost implies that because he makes haste to go to him and tell him we may have found an answer so um, when he explained who the individual was um, he just made sure that he knew I think it was important that he did this this is not 
these guys coming back again, this is a totally different guy, and you need to listen to him. And apparently Nebuchadnezzar did. He immediately began to question Daniel, asking whether he could actually deliver the dream and its interpretation. He had one thing on his mind. Are you able to make known to me the dream I've seen along with the interpretation? And that's it. Verse 26. And then I want to read verses 26 through 30 because these are very important verses. The king answered and said, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. If I was the king, I, was, I would be expecting him to say, And I can't either. But that's not what he says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He's got him hooked. <laughs> He's just reeling him in now. What's going to happen in the latter days? You have been told, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what this is all about. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone else. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your own hearts. Do you see him backing away from taking credit? He is backing away as far as he can. He's making sure he knows that there is a God in heaven who is responsible for your dream and he's responsible for telling me the dream and the interpretation of it. And so Nebuchadnezzar's on the hook, and he's basically said, tell me more, tell me more. Yes, yes, keep it coming. Come on, tell me more, tell me more. He's got him right where he wants him to be, but not so with the other people. So then we get into verses 31 through 35. In 31 through 35, Daniel then discloses the contents of the particular dream. It's in this section of the chapter that Daniel provides a description of the king's dreams, and then he follows that up with its significance in, in its interpretation. The text here makes it clear that from the standpoint of God's larger divine purpose, even a great figure like Nebuchadnezzar, who is straining and struggling to keep his kingdom and to increase his own kingdom, in the end, he would simply be a figure that would go away. It's not a big deal. It's not the big deal of the story. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, as grand as it seemed to be at the time, would shrink in significance and it would disappear, despite what he's doing now. 
And that is the chief message which the night visions basically communicated to Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom, the power, the strength, as he goes on to say, the glory that he had access to for a moment are only because of God Almighty. 31 through 35. You, O king, were watching. Behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its uh, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image of its, on its feet of iron and clay, and he broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. And it filled the entire earth. What was impressive about this image? Was it the head of gold? That was pretty impressive. Was it the silver chest? Was it the bronze? Was it the iron legs? All of that was impressive. But the most important and the most impressive thing, and I think the most thing that made him curious the most is, what is this stone? <laughs> Where did it come from? What's it going to do? What's it mean? What's it mean when it hit the statue, when it hit the feet, and everything was destroyed? And then this little stone grows into this mountain. Stones don't grow. But it did in his dream. You ever seen a stone grow? Mm -mm. But it did there. Several of the parts of the human figure described as made up of the different metals, starting with at the top with the gold, it moved down towards the ground, composed of metals. Each one were less weighty and thus less valuable. And all of that suggested a successive kingdoms that had some type of degeneration and degeneration in some form or fashion. And I think in verse 34, without any question, the most significant aspect was the stone. It was the most alarming that he saw, but it was also the most mysterious. It didn't happen. Number two, the stone is small in the beginning, and then it grows to be a large, large mountain, a mountain that filled the entire earth. And it was that lasting mountain, verse 44, in its duration that would stand forever and forever and forever. Then in verses 36 through 45, Daniel then says, that's what you saw. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, I'm almost thinking he's going, yeah, I remember that now. You're right. He doesn't stop him and say, you're dead wrong. I don't remember any of that. <laughs> I think he's right on track. He knows he's right. Well, I know he's right on track. But he knows he's right on track because God is the one that revealed him. So in verses 36 through 45, this is the section that, that Daniel, by God's mercy and grace, had succeeded where all of the other wise men had failed. He had given the king an accurate description of his dream. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar offered absolutely no objection to him continuing on and then giving in him the interpretation of the vision. So, according to Daniel, the dream represented the successive kingdoms 
that were going to rise and fall and rule over the people of the earth. He specifically said the head of gold signified the kingdom of the Chaldeans, whose head was, at, the, at that time, Nebuchadnezzar himself, verses 37 through 38. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar felt when he heard that one? Oh, man, I am so good. <laughs> I am so powerful. But the God of heaven had placed into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom, his power, his strength, and his glory, to which he had become accustomed to. Whatever he wished to think, it was not by his own skill or power that he rode over the nations, but it was by the providence and the allowance of God Almighty. He next then goes and quickly says, the chest and arms of silver stood for the kingdom and other kingdoms that we know would be the Medes and the Persians, which would soon come after the Babylonians. And we're going to talk about this during this, the period of history, the years of silence, going to a little bit more dis discussion. But all of these, you notice that he says in verse 9, 39, will be in some way inferior to you. Isn't that interesting? Inferior. The belly and thighs of brass signified a third kingdom inferior to you, which would be the Greeks led by Alexander the Great. And the fourth empire represented the legs and the feet was to break and pieces and do all things. This fourth kingdom is to be divided one as illustrated by the mixture of the iron and clay in verse 41. In other words, it would be strong, but it would also have its weaknesses, which would eventually lead to the downfall. But then he announces the, make, the, the most important thing. The real reason the dream is coming from the kingdom of God is going to be set up. It's going to be set up in the days of the kings of the fourth kingdom. Verse 44, God will set it up, not man, and because of this it will never be destroyed. It will stand forever. Verse 45, I want you to read this with me. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You can take it to the bank that this is what is going to happen. There's no speculation. This is what is going to happen. God's kingdom will be, the kingdom will be God's creation and not the product of human ambition. Notice he says here this kingdom will be indestructible. It will be infallible. It will be victorious over, over all other kingdoms. And it will be eternal in its duration. That's a pretty good kingdom to be part of, isn't it? That's the kingdom that we're in. And then it will also be universal. Finally, let's read 46 through 49. What do they do after this? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was obviously thrilled. He fell on his face. He prostrated before Daniel, commanded they should present an offering and incense to him. That would be a normal thing that they would do, by the way. That's not to say Daniel approved of this. It's just, it's a commentary of what actually happened. But Daniel then said, the king answered Daniel, said, truly, your God is the God of gods. Not the only God, by the way, at this point in time. <laughs> He's the God of gods. Did, did you pick that up on that one? And the Lord of, of kings and a revealer of secrets since, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many gifts, 
and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Remember, his kingdom was divided into various provinces. Remember, Darius was over the kingdom of Babylon first. It seems either, I don't know if Darius is still there, but at least he's now put over the province of Babylon and the chief administrator over the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel did not forget his friends. He said, I have three buddies that I'm going to take care of. And he brings them and he says, let's take care of them. And so he, the, <clears throat> Daniel petitioned the king and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the fairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the, king of, or the, in the gate of the king. God is not dead. He was not dead then, and he's not dead now. God is active in the affairs of men. We just don't always see how he does that. Just like they didn't always see how he did it back then. But God is God. He knows what's going on, and he is in control. He was in control then. There's no doubt that he's in control today. I also love what verse 14 says about Daniel, how he answered Eric. Remember about counsel and wisdom and prudence? I could not help but thinking of that particular time when we deal with people, we may confront the Ariacs of the world in trying to present the gospel to people. And we're not supposed to get crazy, wild, and uh, mean with them. Instead, we're supposed to have our speech seasoned with grace. Meanwhile, praying for us... <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, the praying for us also that God would open us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, letting my speech be seasoned with grace, be with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. If that is not what Daniel did to Ariok, I don't know what he did. And the, th the same thing applies to us today. We're going to run into these kinds of people. And we have to have wisdom, discretion, judgment on what we say. It's that simple. Be grateful to God for his blessings. Do we always thank God for the blessings that we have? Or do we just go through life thinking, ah, this is the way it is every day. It's just, you know, without God, it's going to be like this too. We need to be thankful for all that we do. And I think the most important thing we get out of this lesson tonight is this final one. God's kingdom is the most important kingdom, and it must be the most important thing in our lives. He prophesied about it. He gave his son to die on the cross for us. Everything about this book is all about the establishment of God's kingdom and his people. And that's what we always need to focus on. And we don't need to get that confused with anything else that's going on in this life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what it's all about. All right.